Please, may we stand for the reading of today's Old Testament lesson from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1 through to 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord held a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah meanwhile had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, what are you doing? Sound asleep, get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us. I thought so that we do not perish. The sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast laws, so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lords, and the Lord fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord of God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them so. This is the word of God for the people of God. Please, let's be seated. Well, grace and peace to each of you. Uh, we're so glad you're here this morning. Those of you online, we're grateful. Uh, wasn't sure that you'd be here on this cold morning, but this may be your last chance to get out for a few days. Uh, and most of you will be stopping for milk on the way home. So uh, we are uh, praying for our youth, as Ani mentioned, returning early from Lake Junaluska, and how wonderful, wonderful, wonderful it is to have uh, Ray Kamalo with us this morning, and we welcome Ray. Uh, Ani's already done so, but we were reminded this morning that we're, we're in the 20th year. This is 20 years of this partnership with South Afri Africa. It's a remarkable partnership, and the friendships and relationships that we've made uh, across the pond in Howick and Brentwood Society Church, they've named uh, their church in uh, Brentwood Society Church, and so we share not only the name, but we share a deep sense of love and relationship. And, and thank you all for your participation. I remind you that we have 450 students. That includes teachers and faculty uh, that you are supporting 
And, and as we know, for every dollar that we share in terms of education, these children, as they grow up, will realize $5 economically, and it's changing their lives. Christian education is changing. Uh, the, the blessing is on both sides of the pond, and we're so grateful, Ray. Uh, you'll have a chance to speak to Ray afterwards uh, in the North X, and we hope you'll take a, a moment to do that. Also want to thank Paul Farrington. Uh, Paul, we're remembering your wife, Karen, in our prayers, and we appreciate you uh, being on the bench today. And our friend, Pastor Jeremy, is here with us today. And Jeremy, we're grateful to have you with us as well. Uh, it's a joy to welcome you. Uh, is, um, Norman, is Norman Hamber in the house? He's working. Uh, if you have not met Norman, Norman is our new associate director of missions and outreach. He comes to us with wide experience, uh, 14 years experience as the chief of staff at uh, the Nashville Rescue Mission for Men. And he is now an associate with us and you will want to meet Norman and Mary and their family. He is a cradle roll Methodist from Blakemore United Methodist Church. And he is a tremendous addition to our staff. So we're grateful uh, one and all to, uh, especially to Norm and Mary as they join us. We're starting a new series this morning that's gonna last for four Sundays that's called A Whale of a Tale. Uh, I grew up fishing. How, how many of you, I'm just curious, would consider yourself fishermen, fisherwomen out there? Some of you would. I grew up fishing. My father taught me to fish when I was a boy, and, and we were creek fishermen. Uh, we would often go to West Tennessee and, and fish on Trace Creek in Waverly, Tennessee, which was that creek, as you'll recall, that flooded a couple of few, a few years ago. And I grew up, as I grew up fishing, I always preferred live bait to lures, to artificial bait. Uh, but in this story that we've read this morning, it's interesting because the main character actually becomes the bait in the story, in this fish story, and it's a whopper. I, I was thinking as I was studying this week that a couple of years ago, Sherry and I took our, our daughter and son-in-law on a fishing trip, deep sea fishing. I had never done it and our son-in-law had never done it. Our daughter caught a few fish, Sherry and I caught a few fish. Uh, the only one on the boat that didn't catch a fish was our son-in-law, who, who at six feet, six inches, it was kind of a, a test of his manhood, I think, that he didn't catch a fish. But at one point while we were fishing, deep sea fishing, he, he hooked a fish and fought with it for maybe 60 or 90 seconds, and, and then the line broke. In the next two hours, by the time we docked the boat, that fish that he lost had tripled in size <laughs> in his imagination. It, it had gone from, I think, being Little Nemo to Moby Dick in the scale of two hours. And, and I realized when all that happened, and this is true of fishermen, that the ones we miss are always twice as big <laughs> as the ones that we catch. It's always that way. I'll tell you something else that you already know because I'm preaching to the choir today, it, it, is that fishermen and preachers are gifted in the art of hyperbole. Now you know that in terms of exaggeration. In fact, I remember catching a catfish once that was so big that the picture weighed eight pounds and six ounces. It, it was huge, it, it gets bigger. Uh, I had a t-shirt my wife made me throw away that said, I don't exaggerate, I just remember big. 
And this is big. This is a whale of a tale. I want to introduce Jonah to you as we begin this series. Jonah is one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scripture. We refer to them as minor, not because his narrative is less significant than the major prophets, but because his narrative is very brief. Isaiah, it takes him 66 chapters in his narrative. Ezekiel and Jeremiah, 52 and 48 chapters. But if you read this book, four chapters, Jonah, in 43 verses, it will take you eight minutes to read this. And it's going to take me four weeks to teach it. And so I hope you'll stay with me the whole time. Jonah's prophecy is different from other prophecies in that it contains almost no biographical data. There's very little information about Jonah, and it only has one line of his preaching, five words, and we'll talk about that next week. But the book is based on a historical figure that is actually cited in 2 Kings chapter 14. Jonah, son of Amittai, was a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II ruled Israel in the 8th century, mid-8th century B.C. He was known to grow the economy. He expanded the military. He extended the borders, reclaimed parts of Israel that had been lost. And yet with all that success, his epitaph in 2 Kings 14.24 reads, And Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of God. With all that success, you only get one epitaph if you're a king in Israel or Judah. It's either you did what was right in the sight of God, you did what was evil in the sight of God. And he is critiqued by Hosea and Amos, by religious leaders, because of his idolatry, because of idol worship, and his oppression of the poor. But Jonah supported his policies though his colleagues, Amos and Hosea, did not. Now, here's a spoiler alert for you. Religious leaders don't always see eye to eye on politics. There was a, a difference between Jonah and the others. In fact, there are many rabbis who would say later on that Jonah was actually more preoccupied in nation-building than he was in kingdom-building. He was more obsessed with partisan politics than he was with Yahweh. Second Kings also tells us something about Jonah. Where was he from? Where is his home of origin? It's in a place called Gath Hefer, which was a little village about three miles north of Nazareth, a stone's throw from Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine. And his name, Jonah, you know what it means? It means dove which is a symbol of Israel. And yet, unlike other prophets, Jonah is not lifted up in the Scripture as a model to follow. <laughs> He's lifted up as an example to avoid. In fact, Ray, what you read a moment ago, chapter 1, reveals a human tendency that's within all of us that tends to occur when God calls us to do something 
that's difficult, Jonah responds with resistance. If you've ever felt a nudge of God and you have responded with resistance, you're in good company in the Scripture. It was true of Moses. You remember in Midian, where Moses had that vision of the burning bush, and God called him through this epiphany to return to Egypt and lead his people out of slavery. You remember how Moses responded? He gave five of the best excuses why he could not do what God was calling him to do that I've ever heard. In fact, I've used them. I recommend them to you. It won't get you anywhere with God, but I've used them. I'm inadequate, I'm ignorant, I'm inept, I'm untalented, and I'm unavailable. Resistance, it's a biblical truth. It was true for Jeremiah, who was called as a young man, who responded by saying, no, I'm just a boy. I'm too young. How about Isaiah, same with Isaiah who during temple worship was called of God, and he responded by saying, I'm a man of unclean lips living among a people of unclean lips. Resistance. It's par for the biblical course. Almost always, our initial response to God's commission is resistance. I'm embarrassed to tell you, confessionally, that I experienced a call to ministry at 19, and I spent three years resisting the call because I thought God had the wrong guy. And so it was with Jonah. Listen again to the opening, the introductory verse of the text. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, I want you to go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and preach against it, cry out against it, for their wickedness has come before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, coastal port city, north Israel, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board, watch this, to go with them away from the presence of the Lord. Resistance. Now stay with me for a moment because to understand the extent of this prophet's opposition to God, you have to look at the map. Look at the map for a moment. Nineveh's not that far from Israel. It's in modern-day Mosul, Iraq. This is about 550 miles from Joppa. But look how far Tarshish is. This is modern-day Spain, Tarshish, 2,500 miles west of Joppa, of Israel. So Jonah's not just ignoring the call. He's going the opposite direction. God said, go east, and Jonah goes west. I have to tell you, that's more than resistance. That is willful disobedience from a prophet. Now, here's what you might want to understand about Tarshish. Tarshish, in the mind of a Hebrew, the Near East, was considered a far-off, idealized port. You see in 1 Kings 10 that once upon a time, Sol Solomon's fleet once sailed to Tarshish, spent three years there, and came back to Israel bringing, watch this, gold, silver, ivory, monkeys, 
and peacocks. So the Hebrew mindset was that Tarshish is some kind of distant paradise. You might call it Shangri-La. It's an escape from reality. It's Vegas. It's, it, it's Disney World. It's Neverland. It's Nirvana. And the whole thing at that point reminds me a little bit of the story of the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son who left his father, who loved him, who left home for, for a far country in order to flee his identity. In other words, to lose himself. But the far country is not a place, it's a diversion. And he winds up in a pig pen, which is about as low as a Jewish boy can go and still be alive. But there in the pig pen, he remembers his father and he comes back to himself. The longest trip you will ever make is to come back to yourself. Who was it that said that sometimes when we lose our way, we find ourselves? But Jonah's not running away from home. He's running away from God. And that is a common response when God calls us to do something that's a little too risky. When God calls you to do something that you really don't want to do, there's resistance. And I want to say, I'm not being too critical of Jonah. I am Jonah. I get it entirely. Who in their right mind would choose to go to Nineveh? This is one of the only times at this point in the Old Testament where a prophet is called to leave Israel to go to another place, a foreign place, and Nineveh of all places, the capital of Assyria. And does anybody remember what the Assyrians did to Israel? They destroyed it. They ransacked it, they burned it, and they deported the people. In fact, historians tell us that the Assyrian war machine was the most efficient military force in the ancient world. They were known for their cruelty and ruthlessness towards their enemies, and they were considered to be a terrorist state. So I'm not jumping on Jonah, I get it. The very idea of preaching repentance to those people, there's no way. It's not happening. He's not going to do it. Because Jonah wants vengeance, not repentance. He wants retribution. He doesn't want remorse. Jonah is scared to death that if he preaches to these people and they receive grace, that they'll be forgiven. And he's not sure he wants them forgiven. At this point, he's not just resistant, friends. He's defiant. And so what does he do? He buys a one-way ticket to Shangri-La. But he doesn't get too far, does he? All of a sudden, the clouds begin to come, and the waves begin to rock the boat, and a storm arises. He's got a one-way ticket. He put it on his expense card, his Samaritan Express but he's not getting anywhere. In fact, the sailors start pitching all the cargo until they draw lots and find out that this is the problem <laughs> over here, his name. The problem is named Jonah. You know the name Timothy Keller, don't you? 
wonderful Presbyterian preacher, Jeremy, who was a part of the Reformed Church, a wonderful preacher in Manhattan, Redeemer Presbyterian, until he passed away last May. He wrote a book about Jonah that is a must read. It's called The Prodigal Prophet, in which Dr. Keller says this, listen to this. The dismaying news is that every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. In my disobedience, there's chaos that follows. There's a storm. He goes on to say, look, life is filled with storms, with suffering and difficulty, some of which we bring on ourselves, but much of which we don't. But in either case, Keller says, God can work out his good purposes in our lives even through the storms that come upon us. Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. He doesn't cause all the storms, but he's with us in the midst of the storm. It's a holiday weekend, of course, today. And many of you know that in seminary in the 80s, I had the privilege of taking preaching at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Every afternoon when we would walk into that sanctuary, we would see where Mrs. King, Martin's mother, was shot in cold blood at the organ bench. And we would remember the sacrifice of that family. I'm still amazed by the courage and the willingness to accept this task of this young preacher named Martin who didn't want to take up the task. His family didn't want him to take up the task of civil rights. But late one night in January 1956, he decided that he would follow the call of God. The phone rang one night at the parsonage of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, where at 27, <laughs> he was the pastor. Martin picked up the phone. The voice on the line was menacing, and this is what the voice said. We're tired of you and your mess, and if you're not out of this town and out of your house in three days, we're going to blow your house up and we're going to blow your brains out. That's what the voice said. The mess he was referring to, of course, was the Montgomery bus boycott that started a month earlier when an exhausted employee named Rosa Parks refused to get up out of her bus seat for a white man. After the call, Martin went into the kitchen. This is late night. Everybody else was asleep. He had a decision to make. He realized, he said, that I was in the belly of a whale called segregation. At first, he said, I tried to figure a way out. I thought to myself, and this is exactly what he said, if I could have left Montgomery without looking like a coward, I would have done it. But then something happened. As he began to pray out loud, he said, I heard a voice calling my name, a voice that was purer and stronger than the one I heard on the phone. And it said, Martin, get up. Martin, Stand up. Stand up for truth. Stand up for justice. Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for me. And he said, I wanted very badly to hop a boat to Tarshish, but God left me in Montgomery in a storm. 
He could have fled to higher ground, but he said, I could not flee that voice. And he learned the lesson of Jonah, and that's this. You can run, but you cannot hide from God. Where can I go from your spirit, says the psalmist? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will hold me fast. You can't get away from the voice. You can run, but you cannot hide. It was Andy Stanley who said, you can't resist the will of God and receive the grace of God at the same time. It's not a battle of skills, life. It's a battle of wills. Jonah wants doom, but God wants redemption. Jonah wants revenge, but God wants reconciliation. And here's the thing that hurt Jonah most of all is that he realized that God loves Ninevites as much as Israelites. I'm not sure I always mean it when I pray that line that you led us in, Ani. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes I'm more interested in my will than God's will. And sometimes we think we know best. Jesus would intentionally lose the battle of wills on the night before he died when he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I'm here to tell you this morning, that is a battle that's worth losing. I hope you lose it every time. I think sometimes about myself, if I spend as much time surrendering to God as I do resisting God, that the world and the church would be a better place. Dr. King said, every genuine expression of love grows out of a consistent and total surrender to God. Every act of genuine love. Last word. Uh, How many of you were here Christmas Eve? Lift your hand if you were. I think everybody was here. I think Williamson County was here. Uh, We had, what, 23 services on Christmas Eve? There's a lot of services. It was a wonderful night. I'm still getting over it. It was a wonderful night. But something happened at the 8 o'clock p.m. service that wasn't in the bulletin. It wasn't supposed to happen. It's a little embarrassing, but I'm going to tell you what happened. We were processing in, down the middle aisle. The youth choir was processing in. I was bringing up the rear, and we were singing the carol, O Come All Ye Faithful. And we got into the chancel, and one of our teenagers, a senior in high school, had the Emmanuel banner, huge banner, and set it right here. And she thought she set it in the holster and started walking off, and I was standing there, but it wasn't firm in the holster. And all of a sudden, I found myself wrapped up in Emmanuel. (laughs) It fell over on me. I caught it, or should I say it caught me. And, and the, you all, I mean, you all enjoyed it, actually. I think you had a good laugh. There were teenagers sitting, uh, sitting right down here on the left, and, and I thanked them after the service that they had my back. They were very entertained and overjoyed by the ordeal. And I said before I preached, 
I've been doing this 41 years, and this is the only time that I can remember almost being taken out by Emmanuel. And I thought about it later. Would to God. Would to God that we should be so blessed to have Emmanuel just fall upon us, consuming us, overshadowing us so that our resistance might be overruled, so that we might live in surrender and submission to God's will and way. The Persian poet said it like this. Listen to this. Very little grows on jagged rock, so be ground, be crumbled, so that wildflowers will come up wherever you are. You've been stony for too many years. Try something different. Surrender. Surrender. That's the safest place that you'll ever go is to a place called surrender. May it be so. In Jesus' name.